Good morning, and open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, this week we get to finish this wonderful little book, and last week, as we went through chapter 2, we saw God's answers to his prophet's question, and those answers revealed his righteousness. Remember, in Habakkuk chapter 1, he appeals to the Lord with some very significant things. God, uh, do you even care about what's going on? And Lord, if you care, then why are you not doing anything about it? And of course, God's answer is that he does care, and it was that reminder that not only does God care, but that God is never late, that God's timing is absolutely perfect. He is able to accomplish his perfect will in his perfect way at the perfect time. Not only is God's timing perfect, but God's character is perfect. When, when Habakkuk looks around and he sees that God is not only seemingly tolerating the sins of his people, but that when he hears that God will use a wicked people to discipline his sinful people, he wonders if God is fair, if he's right in doing that. Does God's character allow him to use evil to accomplish his purpose? And God reminds him that he is perfect, that his character is unchanged, that God has always demanded righteousness. That from God's people, he says, the righteous one will live by faith. That in every circumstance, in every situation, the righteous person's actions, attitudes, and affections are governed by their faith, by their deep and heart-grounded knowledge in who God is and what he's doing. And he reminded him that he will deal with the unjust, with the unrighteous, that God will come to the place where he will destroy the greedy and the violent and the lustful and the idolatrous, that he will deal with those things once again in his perfect timing. Habakkuk wondered about things that deal with the nature and the character of God. And that's important because we have the same questions. When life is difficult, when the circumstances are pressing we have to cry out to something, to somewhere. And Habakkuk turns those questions towards God. And the answers that God gave, again, displayed his righteousness. But now the question is, how will Habakkuk respond? When God gives him the answer that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is just, that he is merciful, that he is acting, and that he will accomplish his will in this situation... What will Habakkuk do with that information? And this week, as we close with chapter 3, we're going to see that Habakkuk responds to that revelation of righteousness. That's what this is. Chapter 2 was the revelation of God's righteousness. Chapter 3 is the response to that righteousness. And the only right response to an understanding of God and who He is, is to worship. And so if you're not there already, I'd invite you to find your way to Habakkuk chapter 3. And I'm going to read a couple of verses. We'll disconnect them. We'll put them all together at the end. But Habakkuk 3, verse 1 begins this way, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, uh, we are a people either 
in crisis, moving through crisis, or anticipating crisis at some point. We live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people, and sin is a wrecker. Lord, remind us today of who you are. We ask along with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, help us to see the truth of who you are and to understand not only the depth of your love, but the amazing, incomprehensible understanding of your power, your glory. And then, Lord, help us not only to gather knowledge, but to act on that, to live in light of the truth that you reveal to us. Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are a people in desperate need of your help to do those things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. A few weeks ago, I heard a great quote. I'm going to give you the first part of it, the first phrase, and I want you to think in your mind maybe how you would end this quote. If I were to say to you, there is no situation so bad that what, what would kind of complete that thought in your mind? There's no situation so bad that what? That it doesn't have a silver lining, that you can't find some good, that it can't be turned around. Uh, That's kind of where we would expect. But the end of this quote was, there is no situation so bad that you cannot make it worse. And like, oh, well, that's not super comforting or helpful, maybe. And that's not exactly what we came here on Sunday morning to hear. But I want to unpack what the author meant by that. What he is saying is, uh, essentially, there is no situation so bad, so difficult, so painful, or so unjust that you cannot complicate it or compound it by adding your own sin to the mix. See, here's the reality, and it's not a real comfortable reality, but here's the reality. For the believer, for the one who has their faith placed in God, the worst thing that can happen in any and every circumstance is not more difficulty or more pain or more trouble, the worst thing that can happen is more sin. And we are a people that are prone to take a situation that is already difficult and add our own sin into the mix, and what comes out is more difficulty. What do we have here in Habakkuk? We have a man facing an incredibly difficult circumstance. A faithful man living in faithless and trying times, someone who believes what God says, someone who trusts God's character, but who doesn't see anything working out the way that he believes that it would if God were actually in control. And it's difficult, it's frustrating for him. He knows that God cares. He knows that God is going to deal with the sins of his people. He knows that God is going to bring judgment to his people. But that doesn't make his situation any easier. Actually, it makes it worse because now he knows that God is going to use an evil, violent, and wicked people to come against his fallen Israel. So what does he do? What do we do? When we say, God, I know who you are. God, I know what you're capable of. God, I know what your character is like. And still, the days are long and wicked. What happens when we know God's heart and we know God's character and we know God's nature and still the diagnosis isn't good? What happens when we cry out for justice and still unjust things happen to us? What happens when we cry out for restoration, restoration that God loves and longs for, but still the relationship is fractured and broken? What happens when we come and we sing and we pray and we worship on Sunday and we say and affirm all the right things to each other and then we wake up Monday morning and life is still a dumpster fire at best? What do we do when life is still hard, even when we know the truth? 
When Habakkuk is confronted with the righteousness of God, with the character of God demonstrated and displayed in chapter 2, he responds in worship. He exalts the Lord that he knows even when he cannot rightly get his mind around the circumstances. Even when there's things he doesn't understand, he goes back and he appeals to and he rejoices in what he does understand. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 3, this joyful rejoicing response. And the first thing that we see is that Habakkuk rejoices in humility. And then for the bulk, in the middle of the chapter, we see that he rejoices kind of in light of the history of what God has done among his people. And in the end, we rejoice in the ultimate hope that he has in the Lord. So let's open this up and look at the first couple of verses where he rejoices in this humility. And the first thing that we see as we open this up is a prayer, but it's a prayer with a very different approach than we've seen before. Look at how chapter 3 opens. It's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And we don't know exactly what that means. It's likely a musical notation, especially given what comes at the end. This is set up very much like a psalm. So what we have is a poetic, musical prayer. It's Habakkuk's private response to what he has seen, but he processes that in a way that makes it public and that calls others along in this response. And this prayer, like all prayers, is essentially speaking to God. That's what prayer is. There are many different parts and facets, and we could spend hours and weeks moving through what prayer means and how to accomplish God-honoring prayer. But most simply, prayer is talking to the God who listens. And Habakkuk prayed in chapter 1, didn't he? What did he pray? How long? How long am I going to wait? Why do I cry out to you and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything? God, how can you use them to accomplish your will? And this is a different kind of prayer, not because the title is a prayer, not because it's set to music, but we see that this prayer opens differently. There's a humility that characterizes where he's at now. In chapter 1, the prophet asks real questions, questions that have a place. It would make no sense to hide these kind of questions from God, who knows our hearts and our minds better than we do anyway. And so there's a place for Habakkuk to bring those honest questions to God. But as you look at chapter 3, something significant has changed. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. He's moved from questions, even frustration, to worship because there's this holy fear that's been awakened in his heart. It's not a terror from an unknown God who's going to know, do an unknown thing. Otherwise, prayer wouldn't make no sense. It's this fear, this reverent fear that recognizes the power and the authority and the wisdom and the plan of God as it's going to unfold here. And that's really important. Because there's going to be a competition in Habakkuk's life, and indeed there's a competition in all of our lives for what we will fear. Either the circumstances will be so big and so pressing, so unknown, so close, so right in our face that they are terrifying, or the reality of who God is will draw our hearts to this holy fear. And it's the same for every situation and every circumstance. Either the circumstance is big enough to fear, or God is big enough to respond with that holy, reverent fear to. In chapter 1, for Habakkuk, the circumstances in Judah, the rebellion and the rejection of his people, the thought of an impending invasion by the Chaldeans so occupied his heart and mind that all he could do was cry out, how long and why and is that right? 
nothing has changed in the circumstance, but everything has changed in his perspective. And now the fear is not what will come. Now the fear is rightly set in the trajectory of who is God and what is he doing in this. His heart is now occupied by the overwhelming picture of who God is. And so there's this different approach, but not only is there a different approach that's driven by humility, now it's characterized by a different anticipation. There's a different hope, a different expectation for what's going to happen. What did Habakkuk want in chapter 1? He wanted good things. He wanted to see God work. He wanted to see God intervene, but he thought that that would involve changing the hearts of the people, that perhaps God would send a a disciplinary action that would revive and restore and kind of call the people back to the Lord. And when God said, I'm going to do something in your day that you can't even imagine, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to discipline you, what did Habakkuk say? No thanks. Do what you're going to do, but don't do it that way. It's too scary. It's too terrifying. And besides, we would never survive it. And now he's been brought through that fullness of God's response in chapter 2, that fullness of the reminder of who God is and what he's done. And look at how he responds now. In the midst of our years, revive it. In the midst of our years, make it known. What is the it? Well, you have to go back to the first half of the verse. I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. The it is your work. In the midst of our years, revive it. Make it known. In chapter 1, he asked for God to work. But he really wanted God to work according to his own expectations. And now we've come to chapter 3, and he wants God to work in the way that only he can. Habakkuk comes to the place where he says, Lord, the days are evil, the people are evil, do your work. Lord, the thought of Babylon coming in to oppress and to crush and remove us is terrifying. Lord, do your work. That work is not what Habakkuk would have planned. You have to understand that. The work is not the way Habakkuk would have accomplished it. It wasn't what he wanted, but he's come to the place where he recognizes that only God in his perfect holiness can do what is exactly necessary in this situation. In chapter 1, Habakkuk wanted answers. In chapter 3, Habakkuk wants to see God work. And he closes that little section with this, in wrath, remember mercy. It's not just a throwaway line at the end. It's not just a kind of maybe pleading hope. In that wrath and mercy, it is full of covenant expectation. He knows that the wrath of God is coming on his people, and he knows that it's the just and the right response. God's people have fallen. They have sinned. They have turned their back on their covenant obligations that they made at Sinai. They have had warnings. They have had prophets. uh, They have had plagues come upon them, and still they refuse to listen. And so Habakkuk knows that not only is the wrath coming, but that it's just when it comes. It's painful, it's terrifying, but it's right. But he also knows that that same God who promised to be faithful to discipline his people would be faithful to redeem them, restore them, and renew them in spite of that. See, if God is perfect, then he will keep his promise, and that includes his promise to discipline in his wrath. But it also maintains that promise of mercy. And so Habakkuk prays according to the covenant promises of God. 
Lord, if your wrath must come, and it must, in your wrath, remember your promise of mercy to sustain a remnant for yourself. A wrath that is going to see the devastation of your city, Lord. Your temple, Lord. Your people, Lord. In your wrath that is going to see discipline unlike anything I can imagine, Lord, in the middle of that just and righteous wrath, remember the promises of your mercy. And so even in light of what's coming, he sees hope for rescue and redemption. And that brings us kind of to the central, the middle part of this chapter that displays this renewed awe for who God is. And now, not only is there this rejoicing in humility, this humble approach to God, but now what we're going to see is there's this rejoicing in history that Habakkuk looks back at the history of his people and he takes joy in what God has done. And because God's character is unchanging, that same God who did in the past, he understands, will be faithful to continue to do these things in the present. And the first thing that we see is that this is the God who called his people to begin with. This is the God who formed and called and established the nation. See, Israel did not come to be because they were big and strong and mighty. God made promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you a land and a seed and a blessing. And then the people went into exile for 400 years in slavery. And they didn't come out of slavery in Egypt because they got organized politically or because they got a better army. They came out because of the power of God. And as you go through this next part of chapter 3, it doesn't use terms that we're necessarily familiar with. It doesn't chronologically lay it out. Again, this is poetic. This is a song. It is beautifully written. But the images are clear. This God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Those names that he uses broadly refer to this area, kind of the south and east of Israel along the Sinai Peninsula, and they bring to mind the images of what happened at Sinai. What happened at Sinai? God gave his people the law there. It was at Sinai that God entered into that covenant relationship that said, you are mine, my treasured possession among the whole earth. I am going to be your God and you will be my people. Not only would he be their God, but he would dwell among them. He would give them his law, which would tell them how to live in covenant fellowship with him. And Habakkuk worships in light of the fact that it was God who called and established the nation to begin with. But he doesn't end there. He says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. And you remember how God brought them out of Egypt, that God used those ten plagues to decimate the gods and, and the armies and the Pharaoh and the power of Egypt as he redeemed and moved his people from bondage toward the promised land, the land that he had set aside for them. And as Pharaoh and as Egypt hardened their hearts, against God. God, through pestilence and plague, dealt with them, but that's not the only times God used pestilence and plague. In the lives and the history of Israel, when Israel was wicked and rebellious, God would often use the same measures of discipline to correct and to call them back as well. And so Habakkuk thinks of the judgment that is coming and remember, as we've gone through the Minor Prophets, we've said this. It's kind of a continued motif of the Minor Prophets. They look back at the exodus that was the captivity and the bondage that was, and they tie that to the bondage that is coming. But they also look back to the exodus, the removal from that bondage that was, and they look forward to the anticipation of the God who is able to redeem his people once again. 
So he worships God for his steadfast character and faithfulness. And in verse 6, he says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And some of your Bibles might say, uh, instead of shaking, instead of measuring the earth, they might say shaking the earth. It just kind of depends on what root word you use there. Either way, they're communicating the same thing. God has the absolute authority to do anything he wants over his entire creation. He can stand and he can measure the earth and the nations, not just because he's that big and because he's that powerful, but because they belong to him. You are able to measure the scope of what belongs to you. And God shakes the nations, whether it's Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Israel in their sin. God has the ability to make people powerless before his judgment. And then to further the point, he starts talking about the eternal mountains that are scattered, the everlasting hills that are sunk low, the idea that God has authority not only over the people and the nations, but that God has the authority over the physical topography of his creation as well, that God has the power to bring mountains low, that he can shake the earth. And if you were an Israelite, you would remember those times at Sinai that were written about where God shook the earth as his presence was there. You would remember his promises that when he comes again, he will shake the earth, changing the geography. We might think back to the time of Christ's death where God shakes the earth, the idea that God has the power to shake the entirety of his whole creation. That same God who can shake the earth, that same God who can level mountains, that same God who established the nation, that same God that brought them out of bondage is going to bring them into bondage and exile again. But he hasn't changed. And so the one who established the nation has the ability to preserve the nation. The one that redeemed the nation has the ability to redeem them and move them out once again. And and then the second large part of the middle there is not only about the God who established the nation, who called the nation, it's the God who keeps the nation. It's this like repetition of times that God intervened on behalf of his people. Look at verses 8 through 10. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. This kind of continued metaphor, this use of water as God's instrument of judgment. And all we have to do is think back through what we know about the Old Testament, and you can see God's sovereign power over the waters. Genesis opens with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. It's a demonstration of his power as he separates the waters above from the waters below, as he separates the water from dry land and gives the earth shape and form. And we think back to that Exodus narrative. And you have the chasing army of Pharaoh, and you have the barrier of the Red Sea in front, and God parting the Red Sea and allowing his people to cross over safely, but then using that same water to destroy Pharaoh and his armies. You have that same people a generation later, after 40 years of wandering, coming to the border of the promised land. And between them and the land of their promised inheritance stands the Jordan River. And what does God do? stops the rivers and allows his people to go through on dry land. Remember that God, in the history of his people, has demonstrated sovereign power over something as mighty and as unpredictable from our perspective as the rivers and the oceans themselves. 
And God uses those same things to preserve and protect His people. Look at verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Maybe you see sun and moon standing still and your mind goes back to Joshua chapter 10 where Joshua and the people of Israel as they come into the land that God promised them, they defeat the five Amorite kings there and as those Amorites flee, as the the army is crushed before Joshua and the gathered children of Israel, uh, the Lord flings down hailstones like spears from heaven against his enemies. And Joshua prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, let the sun stand still so that we might complete this utter conquest. And miraculously, the sun and the moon stand in their place. And Joshua and the army are given time to utterly defeat and destroy the enemies of God's people. And Joshua 10 verse 14 says, the Lord fought for Israel that day. It's a reminder of God's intervention on behalf of his people you come to habakkuk 3 verse 13 through 15 you went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed you crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And uh, for about as many commentaries as there are, that's about as many opinions as to what that is referring to. I think it's probably best just to take it in light of the entire rest of the chapter, and that is God has continually intervened on behalf of His anointed, His chosen, His people. That God has constantly not only protected Israel, but fought on their behalf. He has preserved the line of Davidic kings against innumerable threats and even their own wickedness. He has preserved his people when the armies gathered against them should have overwhelmed them, sometimes by strengthening Israel's army, sometimes by a single angel of the Lord defeating hundreds of thousands, sometimes by making the armies turn against themselves. The history of Israel is a history of God's intervention on behalf of His people. Of God's overwhelming defeat of their enemies. And on a larger scale, you could look at the devastation and the bondage that sin has brought into this world. The people of Israel were slaves to Egypt, but all of humanity are slaves to, in bondage to, dead in their sin and trespasses. And yet at the proper time, the sun came to destroy the power of death and sin. At the proper time, God will ultimately overcome Satan and the grave, and he'll defeat the enemies of his people. What's the message that Habakkuk was supposed to understand from all of this? That God is awesome in power, that he is perfect in his righteousness that he is absolutely unopposed in his judgment, that he is perfectly faithful in his deliverance, and that as far back as you can look in the history of God's people, God has demonstrated nothing less than perfect faithfulness. And so looking forward, whatever comes, you can worship in light of the perfect continued faithfulness of God. 
And that brings us to the closing verses of this wonderful little book. What do you say when you have that overwhelming picture of God's unimaginable power and glory and sustaining mercy and wrath all wrapped up in your mind? Well, we see from Habakkuk that the closing response is to rejoice in the hope that he has, the hope that we have. And the first thing you see in verse 16 is this resolve that all of this brings. Habakkuk's kind of resolution in spite of the circumstances. See, I think if the Bible were a purely human book, then our heroes would be a little bit more heroic. I think if the Bible was just a human book, then David probably doesn't lie and kill and commit adultery. I think if the Bible's just a purely human book, maybe Peter doesn't deny Jesus, and he comes off just a little bit more courageous. I think if I were writing the story and we were trying to show how faithful the prophet was, maybe Habakkuk takes God's revelation and God's word and God's promise and goes away without any fear, without any trepidation, but that's not what happens. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That is a picture of a prophet in turmoil. His inside parts are shaken. His lips are trembling. He has no strength left in his bones. Why? Because not only does he know what God is like, he now knows exactly what God is going to do. In chapter 1, he asked God whether he even cared and what he was waiting for. And now that he knows the answer, the answer is terrifying. God is going to intervene and he's going to come to his people in judgment. And there's not going to be a, a revival. There's going to be a removal from the land. He knows that God is going to send a violent and vicious people to discipline Judah and Jerusalem. And now he knows that it's going to happen in his own lifetime. Habakkuk knows that he can't just live out his days in peace and pass these warnings down for a future generation and just try to hold on and be faithful. He knows that he is going to see this come to pass. Think about that for a moment. He knows that at some point in his life, he is going to see the armies of Babylon on the horizon and nothing will stand in their way. He knows that he will see cities fall. He'll see soldiers die. He'll see Jerusalem overwhelmed. Innocents are going to be slaughtered. And he's going to see that. And he knows that it's bad right now. And all God has told him is, I am who I am, and it's going to get worse. And so he responds in an honest way that the thought of what is coming shakes him to his very core. But what's the resolve that comes behind that? Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. See, he knows that within his lifetime, judgment is coming on Israel. What he doesn't know is how long the wait will be before that same judgment comes on Babylon. He knows that God despises sin. He knows that God will deal with the wicked. He knows that God will deal with the unjust and the greedy and the violent. 
but he doesn't know when. He knows that because Babylon stands against God, it must fall. He knows that everyone who stands against God will ultimately be judged, but he doesn't know when. And so he commits himself to waiting, and not waiting in complaining, not waiting in bitterness, not waiting in dissatisfaction. He says, I'm going to wait quietly, patiently, humbly, waiting for the time when God will do what is ultimately right and perfectly within his character. And that resolve, that determination to wait for God's justice, even though he may not see it, leads this beautiful kind of concluding response starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, Will the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls? He's describing this time of desperation and need. Put in your most horrific what-if scenario. That's what he's going through. The idea of the olive and the fruit and the field. These are the agricultural staples of the land of Israel. This is what sustains them physically as a people. And he's pointing to a time when the what-if is that none of these are left. These are those things that in Leviticus 26, you remember way back in the beginning of the Minor Prophets when we went to Leviticus 26, these are the things that God promised to bless and multiply and increase as the people were faithful. They're also the very same things that God promised to do away with as the people were sinful and rebellious. And the people are rebellious. Which means that even if Babylon didn't come, they should not expect to be prosperous and comfortable They should not expect to live in physical comfort while they pursued spiritual poverty. But beyond that, Babylon, this great invader, was coming, and Babylon doesn't leave much behind when they conquer nations. And so the prophet looks at the state of his people, and he looks at what is coming, and the future is pretty bleak. It's a very real reason to have that that empty feeling in your stomach. It's the very real reason to have no strength left in your bones and have to brace yourself when you try to stand. But look at what he says next. Even though those things may come, verse 18 says, yet. Though we know poverty, famine, and nothing but need, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing uh, this worshipful, joyful response. Confident and heartfelt joy. And it could only be in the Lord. Understand there is nothing in his situation that would bring any amount of joy. There's not even the hope now that his people will turn and get it right. He knows that they are moving toward this certain end of destruction He only is able to rejoice because he knows that God remains in control not just of the situation, but of the judgment. That God remains in control of the restoration only because he knows that God remains faithful. Only because he knows that the terror of what's coming doesn't change the character of God. And he says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Once again, not joy in his situation. There is nothing joyful in his human situation. And I love that he says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Because did God promise salvation from the circumstance? No. Exactly the opposite. 
He said the circumstance now is to the point where it is inescapable. This is what is coming. Babylon is going to come, and there is no physical salvation from that. There is no political ally that's going to come in. There is no strengthening of Israel's army. There is no angelic intervention that is coming. This is what is going to come. Babylon will come, and Babylon will win. And yet he is still called the God of his salvation. Why? Because he knows that God ultimately accomplishes the salvation of his people. That God redeems and restores the ruined, the broken, the humiliated, the scattered remnant of his people. He knows that the righteous, even if they die, are not lost, but that God is faithful to save his people. And so he concludes with, God the Lord is my strength. Verse 16 was a picture of a man with no strength left in himself. Trembling lips that couldn't speak. Shaking bones that couldn't stand. But God will be his strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He is weak and his people are about to be brought very low. But he trusts that the Lord will not only strengthen him, but will bring him up to the high places. What a remarkable response. And we don't know the rest of Habakkuk's story. If we're right about when this is written, then there's roughly 15 years between when he writes and when Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. 15 years knowing that judgment is coming. 15 years of waiting for God to accomplish the discipline of his people. 15 years of preaching a message that you know will not turn anyone's heart. 15 years of anticipating death and destruction and devastation. How do you find the strength to live faithfully, to live hopefully and obediently in those circumstances? Only if the Lord is your strength. And as we conclude this wonderful little book, I want to go back to that quote that I started at the beginning. There's no situation so bad that you can't make it worse. But as we close, I want to give you the rest of that quote that I heard. There's no situation so bad that you cannot make it worse because sin destroys. Sin is a wrecker. But Christ came to destroy the wrecking sin. It's going to get worse for Habakkuk. Life will get progressively more difficult until the unthinkable happens. But Habakkuk has a choice. In light of what's coming and in light of what is, he can complain. He can argue. He can become bitter. He can do everything in his power to minimize the situation or distract from the situation. Or he can worship. He can worship in a way that makes no human sense given the circumstances that he's in. But worship never has anything to do with the physical circumstance that we're in. Worship has everything to do with God's people filling their heart and their mind with the truth of who God is and responding accordingly. And the reality is that you and I have that same choice. You say, you don't know my situation. You're right. 
Maybe you say, Pastor Matt, we've seen you handle stressful situations, and maybe there's times when you haven't exactly responded this way yourself. And once again, you're right. I will be the first one to admit that I have often added my sin to the mix, which compounds and confuses things. And yet Christ came to destroy the wrecking sin. God is faithful to redeem and restore ruined sinners. God is faithful to redeem situations that seem to have no redeeming value, that God can take the unthinkable and use it to further His glory and secure the eternal good of His people. So what do we do in light of that? Three things that I want us to think about. First of all, we ought to consider how we pray during times of trial. How do you pray when things are difficult? Because I'll tell you what my default go-to prayer is. God, make it stop. God, get me out of this. God, change the circumstance. God, change them. God, fix them. God, fix what I'm going through. And there are times when crying out to God in open honesty is good. God, how long is an honest and biblical prayer? We just can't leave it there. In times of struggle, when we cry out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, are you going to make me face this sin? How long, O Lord, are you going to ignore my cries? We just have to make sure that at some point we come back to what we know to be true. That we remember who it is that we're praying to. Do I want God to fix the situation or do I want God to work for His glory and for my eternal good? That perspective shapes how we pray in times of difficulty. The second thing, we need to remember that this is still the God who calls and keeps. This is the God who called Israel out of bondage and who established them in a good land. This is the God who kept them through trials and enemies and struggles and even through their own sin. This is the God who proved perfectly faithful even when his people were faithless. And what a remarkable thing it is that we worship that same God. A God who called us out of the kingdom of darkness and moved us into the kingdom of his beloved son. A God who deals gently with our weakness and our brokenness and our struggles who deals kindly with our sin and says that they were born by His Son who saved us. The one who says we're secure in His hands. We need the same reminders that Habakkuk did. Habakkuk could look back and see a history of God's faithfulness among His people. You and I need to be a people who have a record of God's history of faithfulness because we're very forgetful. And finally, we are a people that love to ask that question, but what if? I know what God wants, I know what God says, but what if? What if the worst happens? What if the unthinkable happens? What if the unimaginable comes? What if the worst thing that I can imagine is what happens? Does God still work? Does God's word still prove true? Does my response still have to be that? The closing part of Habakkuk 3 is Habakkuk's what-ifs. What if the vines fail? What if the crops fail? What if the flocks fail? 
What if everything that we rely on is absolutely removed from us? We can ask the same what ifs. What if the job fails? What if the relationship fails? What if the treatment fails? See, when trouble comes, we can't just shut it out and pretend it doesn't exist. When the trouble comes, we can't always overcome it with careful planning and good resources. But the Christian faith allows us to say to the trouble, even if, and yet my God remains sovereign. It allows us to say to the heartbreak, even if, and my God is still good. It allows us to look death itself in the face and say, even if. And I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, He will take His stand on the earth. And He will call His people to be with Him. Even if. Let's pray. Lord, because we are so good at what-ifs, we are often masters of excuses. Lord, on my own, I have every excuse not to obey. On my own, I have every excuse not to worship. And yet, you are worthy of our praise, even if. So, Lord, remove our dependence on the finite, the fallen, the failed, and the temporary, and set our eyes and our hope on you, so that even if we are a people who worship. Amen.